You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Thanks, Roy and Jean, for sharing that with us. Uh, uh, I love the, the connection in the song, right? When you're looking at the words, the, the hallelujahs, I will praise you, connected with what Jesus has done for us. You, you've delivered me. You've done what no, nothing else, what I couldn't do for myself. You did this, and I'm going to praise you. And hallelujah. So from a, from a 10-year-old, that's, that's pretty good. If you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Just turning there, just want you to to know about an opportunity uh, for you. Uh, the 5th, since Tuesday, I believe, uh, CEF is moving, I believe, that day. Uh, so they would invite you to come at 9 a.m. in the morning uh, to their old office building uh, on Dakota there and meet there, and then they're going to move uh, their stuff to the new office building, uh, and there will be lunch provided if you're available to help them. They would be grateful, I believe. Romans chapter 10, I'm just going to start in verse 1 and then read through verse 9. Let, let's stand together, if you would, and we'll just honor God's Word together. Brothers, my, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for, what, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth, in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you guide us. Lord, there is there's there's so much this text for us, so much depending on understanding of the, the Old Testament and Lord, we ask that you guide us, your spirit work in a, a tremendous way, that you would work past the, the inadequacy of, of speech on my part. Lord, that you would be the one that brings clarity, that guides us to truth. 
that the, the Jesus is, is exalted, the gospel is, is proclaimed clearly, that our lives are molded and shaped and impacted by the truth that it proclaims. Lord, we pray that all the honor, all the glory would be given to You. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. Last time we were in the book of Romans, we took some time. We talked about verse 4 there, the, the, the specifically Christ being an end to the law. Verse 4, for Christ is an end of the law for the... of lo- Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Really a, an amazing statement. Just think about that statement in verse 4 for a moment. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Is Paul suggesting that the law is bad? Is he suggesting that Christians have no obligation to the law because of Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. The law is not a bad thing. We know that because we know what the law is. We know that the law is a a mirror of God's holy standard. If that is the case, then how can the law be a bad thing? It's not. Christians do have obligation when it comes to the law. Paul isn't saying that Christ abolished the law or put an end to it in the sense that we need not pay attention to it. Fact is, we pointed this out last time, The Old and the New Testaments alike are full of law. If the New Testament is full of law, then law matters in the life of the believer, doesn't it? We spent a lot of time trying to differentiate between law and gospel. If you remember, we quoted Thomas Boston extensively there, trying to get that distinction quoted out or carved out in our heads a little bit. On one hand, it's a very simple thing. On the other hand, it's, it's very easy to muddle the two and, and get gospel mixed with law. For instance, when Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia, already in the life of the church, he's making a reference to the fact that some had come in the church and started teaching that one must be circumcised. One must follow certain Jewish laws and regulations in order to be saved. In other words, there was not a a free offer of the gospel. It was a, you can be a partaker of the gospel. You can have eternal life if you just do this, that, and the other thing. Or this one very thing. And Paul is very clear in this instance. Churches, these people have come in and, and bewitched you. What you've been sold is a false gospel because adding law in any way, shape, or form to gospel is perverting the gospel and it's not a true gospel. And if anyone does that, let them be accursed. The law says, if you do these things, you will live. For instance, in the New Testament, Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34. Don't look at it, you can. Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. This is kind of Jesus' thing, right? He takes and builds on the Old Testament, gives it the, the spirit of what the law is. Love one another, he says. It's good. And he goes on and says, How I have loved you. 
so you must love one another. Notice what Jesus does. He says, okay, you're my disciples. This is what you're supposed to do. I'm going to give you this command. Love each other. But don't just love each other. You love each other the way that I have loved you. I mean, if Jesus would have just left it at love one another, that would have been rough. That would have been hard for us to keep that command. That would have been one thing. But he adds to it. How I have loved you, you are to love one another. Because people will know you are my disciples if you have that kind of love for one another. Not just a worldly love, not a family love. But if you have the love for one another the way I loved you, then people are going to look at you and they're going to know who you are. That's hard. John 15, two chapters later, verse 12. We read this from Jesus. This is my command, that you love one another, you guessed it, as I have loved you. So John 13 wasn't a mistake. John 15, Jesus is reiterating the command. We've heard it before. This time Jesus goes on again and says, Greater love has no one than this then someone lay down his life for his friends. Of course, we're reading this with the blessing of hindsight. We're seeing this with 2020 vision. We know the, the end of the story. We know exactly how Jesus loved us, that he did, in fact, die for us. But not only did Jesus step in like a friend, like a good friend would, in front of the store sword that is about to strike us and die being our example of what friendship ought to be, what love ought to be, but he did more. Scriptures declared, well, we were yet sinners. Well, we were undeserving. Well, we deserved only God's wrath. He died for us not just as our example, but he bore the wrath of sin for us. The punishment that should have been ours was laid on him, and he willingly endured that. Why? Because of his great love for us that we're called to imitate in Jesus' own command. Ephesians 2 says it this way. But God, being rich in mercy, check this out, because of the great love with which he has loved us. How did he exemplify that love? Well, we were yet sinners, he died for us, because no greater love is than this, than somebody lay down their life for their friends, right? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Even when we deserved only wrath, he made us alive. When we're dead. Okay, my, my point in bringing up that command of Jesus that he reiterated over and over to love one another as he's loved us, is to point out that that command is, is law. It's not gospel, it's law. If you do this perfectly, Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. If you do this perfectly, just as I have loved you, 
If you love one another that way, if you lay down for your life for your friends, if you take their guilt, their punishment, as he has, then everyone will know that you are a disciple of Jesus and everybody will look at you in your life and say, my goodness, he is a disciple of Jesus. I need to be a disciple of Jesus. But the fact is we fall short, don't we? If people look at my life, if people look at your life, they will see over and over instances where we have not loved like Jesus loved. Jesus did not say, do your best to love like I loved you. And if you do your best, and if you're sincere, and you really try really hard, then people are going to see your sincerity, and then they're going to know that you're my disciple and glorify your Father in heaven. He said clearly, You are to love one another as I have loved you. In both of those instances, in John 13 and John 15, if you look at the context, in both of those texts, he's making reference to his death. How did he love us? Died for us. The fact is, he's given this command to his disciples. And when it came down to it, The disciples ran off and were scared for their lives when Jesus was even arrested. Peter says, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I will never leave, even if it's to death. And we know that he he denied that he even knew Jesus when it came down to it. And we're not better than that. I think the point of Jesus' words in these chapters here is to point us to the fact that we have no option than to rely on Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. We cannot rely on ourselves. We cannot rely on the fact that I can love everybody around me good enough so that they're going to see my Father in heaven and they're going to glorify him. I can do that. I can love that way point of the law is to drive us to Jesus because we can't do that. Is the law good? Yes, the law is good because it drives us to a, a reliance and a dependence on Jesus Christ. Because we can't do that. The only way that we can love and forgive, and be obedient is through the power of the Holy Spirit. To take things even further, the only way that people will see our actions in our life and in turn glorify our Father in heaven is because of God working in them and in us. To quote Steve Green, famous singer, songwriter that has a lot to be proud of when it comes to music. He says that the only song that's going to be sung in heaven is worthy as the lamb who was slain. We were looking up some Johnny Cash songs last night. His last recorded song, I believe, was a remake of a 
Nine Inch Nails song called Hurt. And the video is extremely powerful. You can have it all, my empire of dirt. And it's showing all of his accolades, all of his accomplishments, all of these things. He's sitting by this table of all this great food and he just starts pouring out glasses of wine. In the midst of it, you see images flash of Jesus being crucified. In the end, what really matters? In the end, the only song that will be sung is worthy as the lamb who was slain. So in a nutshell, there is a righteousness that comes from the law. The law is a mirror of God's holiness. So the one that obeys the law perfectly is righteous, just as God is righteous. And the one who obeys the law perfectly then is able to stand before God blameless. And we know that the only one who obtained this righteousness is Jesus Christ. But there's also another righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is apart from the law. For us, it comes through Jesus Christ and his obedience to the law. And it comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice in verses five and six, you can see them both. Moses writes about a righteousness that is based on the law. That's one righteousness. Verse six But the righteousness, so another right, but the righteousness that is based on faith says righteousness of Christ that comes to us through faith. I really like how James Boyce uh, deals with this text. He speaks of it in terms of of three different religions here, and I, I think you'll see this as we go. For instance, in verse five, Boyce says that legalism is speaking through the religion of works or the law here. Legalism is speaking through the the religion of works. Notice in in that verse 5 is really a quote from Leviticus 18, verse 5. Just read that, Leviticus 18, 5. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, they shall live by them. I am the Lord. That is the quote. This isn't the only place that Paul quoted from Leviticus 18.5. He does it again in Galatians 3.12, where he says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Notice something about how Paul used this verse. He's saying that there is a contrast between the way of works and the way of faith, and they're mutually exclusive. Now, to be fair... In Leviticus, if you go back in Leviticus, Moses is telling the people that they need to keep the law, and if they keep it, they're going to enjoy an abundant life. There's an an element of morality here. Of course, this is true. When a person lives according to the revealed will or law of God, they enjoy life as God intended it to to be lived. I mean, there is a sense in which people who, who love God, honor their parents, tell the truth, remain faithful to their wedding vows, don't steal, don't covet, and do these things, they're happier than people who dishonor God by breaking the law, cheating, lying, and coveting material possessions and all of that. Also, in Leviticus, we should understand that those words to the Jews there, as if the Jews would keep the law of God, then God would prosper their nation. And this is true of any nation. It's true of ours. 
I would suggest. Paul is not using this quotation this way, though. Paul would acknowledge, however, that morality is better than immorality, that morality brings us blessing. But Paul is is taking this whole thing a little bit further. And, And I believe Paul is making the case that in religion, we're talking about something more than just morality. We're not just talking about blessings that come from being a moral person. In religion, we're talking about how one can be right with God. So the way Paul is using the quote is he's taking the word live there, not as just your best life now, not just as a good and full life, but he's speaking of eternal life. In other words, if one is able to keep the law, they will be rewarded with the great benefit of life. We recognize when it comes to eternal life, we must seek it through a different way entirely. This is why we were speaking of religion of works or religion of law. Notice that Paul is also saying here in this quote from Leviticus that the way of faith and the way of works cannot be mixed. I say this because Paul says clearly that if one tries to obtain a righteousness by law-keeping, they must live by that standard. In other words, one cannot try and keep the law to earn righteousness and then make up for their lack by adding faith to it. That's what some try to do. That their, their, their religion is about faith, but their faith can't do enough, so they have to add righteousness of Christ to it. Paul is saying, no, these two things are, are mutually exclusive. This would be like the foolishness of what was going on in the churches of Galatia. The people were believing that they must keep the law in order to be saved, but add Jesus in there to fill what was lacking because nobody can keep the law. The scriptures are clear. There is a righteousness that is based on the law. If you try and obtain that righteousness before God, then you must live by it. You can't add faith and you can't add Jesus to that. But there's another righteousness, an alien righteousness. That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is ours through faith alone. Apart from works, these things cannot be mixed. I will say this, though, that just because we are saying that the law and works are separate from the gospel, we're not implying in any way, shape, or form that the law is bad. The law is good because it pushes us to Christ. It pushes us to the gospel. They're not the same thing. You can't muddle them. You don't mix them. You don't add the law in the gospel. You don't add the gospel into the law. They're exclusive, but one, the law pushes us to a reliance on the gospel. It pushes us to a dependence and reliance on Jesus Christ. Not for only our, not only for our own eternal destiny, but even living our Christian life. The more we become aware of what the law says, drawing this from Romans chapter seven, by the way, the more we become aware of what the Bible says concerning coveting, that's what Paul talked about, the more we become aware of it in our own lives. You notice this in your Bible reading? 
The more you start seeing something in the Bible, the more you start becoming aware of it in the Bible, the more you start becoming aware of it in your own life, the more we try and rid our lives of it, the more we try to put to death those things, those coveting in our life, the more we try to put it to death, the more it rears its ugly head, the more we're aware of it. The law pushes us to a dependence on Christ. And the one that confuses those categories then are driven to despair because they're thinking, I I should be able to conquer this. I should be able to, to do this. I should be further along than this by now. Something wrong with me. But our failure should highlight the perfection of Christ. That he was perfect for us. It should push us to the, to the gospel. It should push us to a reliance on Jesus Christ. And when we press on, we don't press on in our own might, in our own power. We press on knowing that Christ secured for us what we could not secure on our own. And that is a tremendous incentive to live in obedience, to live in dependence on him, to let the Holy Spirit through his word empower us and strengthen us. And this only happens when we rely on him and not ourselves. A life lived in true obedience is one lived in true dependence on Jesus Christ, not ourselves. The next verses here are a little bit difficult. I'll try to make sense of them quickly. Boyce says that in verse 6 and 7, what we have here is the, the fact that faith does not or is not speaking through the religion of signs and wonders. The first thing that we need to understand here is that Paul is loosely quoting from the Old Testament again. This time his, his use of the Old Testament is a little more loose than Leviticus earlier, but it's clear that he's drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. Just read that. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So what's the point? Moses is speaking to the people. He's assuring them that God will bless the nation if they obey. The point is that Israel had the law and the law was all they needed. They didn't need some other revelation from God. They didn't need something else from beyond the sea in order to obey what God desired of them. What they needed, they already had. They were to occupy themselves with the law that they had been given, not something else. So you see how this has to do with signs and wonders. In our context, we don't need anything else either. We have the revelation of God to us in his written word, and that is enough. Paul adds a little, though, to the quote from the Old Testament, doesn't he? This is where things get a little bit strange, and they're hard to explain what, is, what, what he means here. Paul explains Moses' reference to ascending into heaven by adding the phrase, that is to bring Christ down, and his reference to going beyond the sea or into the abyss by adding, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So what's Paul saying there? I agree with Boyce again here. 
that most likely there are a few things coming into play here. First, uh, the literal meaning of Deuteronomy, that passage is very clear, and I think that's why Paul is making a reference to it, and that is that Israel didn't need an additional word from God. Paul's reference to Christ suggests that what is already being made clear by him using that text, and that is that the Christian community should not be looking for more revelation from God. They have what they need in Christ. The Bible is, is enough. In Romans 4, for instance, Paul's already made clear that the doctrine of justification by faith was known to Abraham. It was known to David. In their stories, we do not need more than what has already been given. Secondly, it is likely that Paul has in mind here that Israel didn't need to do something in order to bring the Messiah to them. Here we're drawing from the words ascending into heaven or crossing over the sea to get it. It is important to understand that the Jews believed that it would require effort on their part to bring the Messiah to them from heaven. For they, they, like, they must need to repent before the, the messianic era could begin. Again, this is hard to know exactly what Paul was thinking, but it does fit with the context. The Jews wanted to do something to earn their salvation, and even in the expectation of the Messiah, they believed that they needed to do something. They needed to do enough in order to usher in the existence of the Messiah. But Paul is making the case here that even, the, even before the Messiah came, we were not expected to do anything, only believe God's word and look forward to him in faith, just as Abraham and David and countless others in the Old Testament did. Boyce says that a third meaning here is that neither Israel nor Christians today are to look for miracles. Let me explain what I mean. Paul brings up this, this passage, the expressions about ascending into heaven to bring Christ down and descending into the abyss, bringing Christ up. These are expressions of something that is clearly impossible and if somebody could produce Christ or produce his power on demand, then that person would be a, a miracle worker. But we're not to seek that just as we're not to seek for additional revelation, just as we're not to add works into the gospel. I think it's helpful to understand the context a little bit more of Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the, the second giving of the law. Moses is the leader of the Israelites. He's a, a miracle worker. He'd done many signs throughout his lifetime. People followed him probably because largely of, of his, his leadership, his, his close relationship with God and the fact that he did miracles. Jesus, too, did miracles throughout his lifetime. Uh, now Moses is about to be taken from them. Before they go into the promised land, Moses isn't going to be a part of that journey into the promised land. And there was great anxiety on behalf of the people because of this. The people would ask questions like, okay, so we're going into the promised land now. Moses got us this far. Who's going to lead us when Moses, the miracle worker, is gone? We're going to be like orphans left here. And Moses, now at the end of Deuteronomy, is telling them, you don't need another miracle worker. You don't need somebody who's like Moses to do signs and wonders. Why? Because you have the law of God. The law, that portion of scripture that, that, that actually contained the gospel and what they needed to hear 
from God was already in their hearts, in their mouths, according to verse 14 in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's so near you. You already have it. You have what you need. You don't need to go across the sea to get it. You don't need to go into the deepest abyss. You don't need to go there and get it. You already have it. Now, of course, the people were not satisfied with this. They always wanted miracles. By the time of Jesus, they were demanding that Jesus do signs and wonders. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, the unbelieving Pharisees and other teachers demanded that Jesus do miraculous signs. Jesus turns to them and replies this way. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then he goes on to talk about Solomon. I mean, just think about the reference to Jonah there, though. Did Jonah do miracles in Nineveh to get them to repent? No. But just the same, they repented. Solomon did no miracles in Israel, yet the queen of the south came to hear him. And the Jews are demanding that Jesus give them a sign. This was actually showcasing the real problem. And that is that they didn't like what he was saying. They didn't see his teaching for what it was. Life-giving. There are some that would have us believe that in order for people to be saved, or at least something that helps in that process, or miraculous things need to happen in church. Healing, stories of the supernatural are something that, that brings people to faith. But actually those things detract from the message of the atonement, the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. I think that's the point of Matthew chapter 12. Do miracles occur today? just don't want to be misunderstood. Of course, there's different opinions on this. But I would think that we would be very wrong to suggest that they do not. God is not bound by anything. He is able to do miraculous things today just as he was in the past. But the point that I'm making here, I think that Paul is making by using Moses toward the end of his life and ministry, is that we're not to seek the miraculous as part of the gospel. When we add miracles to the gospel, it becomes a false gospel, just as adding works does to it. Both are attempts to do something that God has declared to be outside of the Christian proclamation. Now, both of these false religions of works and signs and wonders are seen in contrast to what is the true religion. Just look at verses 8 and 9. But what does it say? This is still quoting Deuteronomy 30. The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what is the essence of true religion? Notice two things. Just two things. True religion is simple by the way. First, it is a religion based on Jesus Christ and His work alone. It's a religion based on Jesus Christ and His work alone. If we back up to verse 4 in chapter 10, we notice that it is Christ who is an end of the law of righteousness. 
Our righteous standing before God does not come through our law keeping, but Christ's law keeping on our behalf. It is Jesus Christ alone and his work alone on our behalf that matters. Notice in verse 9. What is it there that we are to believe, to confess? The word believe in the Greek is, is faith. We have faith in to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. In other words, we are to confess that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that he accomplished everything that he came to accomplish. That simple. Second. So first, true religion is based on Jesus and his work alone. Second, faith is essential. Faith is essential. Paul has been saying this over and over, that this righteousness that has been revealed from heaven is obtained by faith in Jesus Christ. In Genesis 15, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Salvation is God taking those who are dead in their sins, transforming them into men and women who are alive, regenerate, born again. How does this happen? It happens through faith, through trusting and believing in who Jesus is, who he claimed to be that he accomplished redemption and the forgiveness of sins for every person that would place their faith and trust in him. This is what we mean by a free offer of the gospel, the gospel message of who Christ is, who he claimed to be, what he has done for us. That is the message. And the question is, will you believe, will you trust in the provision that he has made for you that you might be free from the curse of sin and death forever? There's no hoops to jump through. There's no works. It isn't about Jesus doing something in you of a miraculous nature. It's about simply trusting and believing that when Jesus lived his life, he was perfect where you were not. That he died for your sin. That the wrath of God do you fell on Jesus instead. And that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was securing eternal life and victory over sin for every person that would believe. The message of the gospel is that simple. Romans 10.9 makes the gospel simple. Believe that Jesus is Lord. That he is who he claimed to be. That he accomplished everything that he came to accomplish. He said it, right? On the cross, last words, it is finished. It is done. I've came and I've lived and done everything that I came to do. And then he died, taking our sins with him. And then God raises him up in victory over sin and death so that we might be partakers in that with him. This is exactly why we celebrate the Lord's table, isn't it? You would just flip over a couple pages. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians is a bit of a, a rebuke to a certain church. I mean, you start in verse 17 and you start reading. And there's 
horrendous things that are happening in their, in their doing the Lord's Supper. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you're eating, verse 20. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. I mean, there are people in their midst, in their church, who are just partying and having a fill of their own, in their own good time with all their friends over here. There's other people over here that absolutely have nothing. They don't even have enough to eat or drink, and these people are getting wasted. So, Paul then goes back. Verse 22. You despise the church of God, humiliate those who have nothing? Shall I say to you, shall I commend you in this? Will not. Four. Now he's going to make it, now he's going to contrast this, right? For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. It's a nice way of saying you know better, but I'm going to tell you again anyway. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. It's kind of almost hard to, to read that line for me. Paul is, is taking, talking to this church full of sinners. I'm up here talking to myself, a sinner. But notice, Paul isn't saying, because you've been doing this, you don't even deserve to take the Lord's Supper. You don't even deserve to do it right in your church. He's saying, get it right. He's saying this is, this is what it means. That when you take the bread, remember what Jesus said. This is my body, which is for you. For cold. Put your name in there. For you. Why do we keep doing it? Why do we do this over and over and over and over? because we continue to go back to the gospel, because every time we read the Bible and every time we're in it, we recognize how much of a sinner we are. And if coming to this table was based on our own worth, none of us would be worthy, because we don't love like Jesus loved. That's why Jesus' body was broken for us. He did what we cannot. We're acceptable before God because of what he did. We have the right to come to this table because of what he did on our behalf, not because of what we've done. Verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup. After supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this. As often as you drink it. Again, his blood is shared for us, poured out. I mean, does he really have to say 
as, as often as you drink it, remember it of me? I mean, think of, think of the context here. I mean, this is just a tremendous rebuke. You should be making this association because you know what Jesus said on the night he was betrayed. Doing this in the life of the church, you should know that when you drink that juice, that wine, that there's an association there of what Jesus Christ has done for you, that his blood was shed for you. So often as you drink it, remembrance of me. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? Shouldn't need to be what we do. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, this is kind of the thrust. This is the, the big contrast in between how they were treating the Lord's Supper and how it ought to be viewed in the life of the church. So often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church there wasn't proclaiming this death of Jesus until he comes. They were perverting it. They were making it about a party and, and fellowship and all of those things. And in doing that, they were forgetting about their brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. Instead of serving them, they were thinking of only themselves. Whoever therefore, so therefore, based on what he's just said, eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. There are so many ways that we can come to this table unworthy. But being a sinner is not one of them. Because I am one of them. Martin Luther, great reformer, talked about himself in this way, he said, I am at the same time, simultaneously, sinner and saint. I'm a sinner. In this life, in this moment, I'll continue to sin. I hate that about myself. I want to get it right. I Just one thing, I think I got it under control. I continue to sin. But I'm a saint not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on my behalf. Why do we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes? Because if it wasn't for the Lord's death, we would not be a saint. We would only be a sinner. This meal is for you if you are a sinner and saint. If, if you have trusted placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and believe wholeheartedly that what He came to do, who He was, that He died for you, took your sins. If you trust that and, and believe that, you've turned from your sin, you've turned to Him and embraced Him fully. This meal is, is for you because you are at the same time, sinner and saint. This meal is not for those who have not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For you, you're a sinner. You're in your own sin. 
it wouldn't make sense for you to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, unless you have faith. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.